0: Hey, everyone. This is Ben Norton of Multipolarista, and I'm joined by one of my favorite guests today, the brilliant economist Michael Hudson. And there are a lot of things that we plan on talking about today. We're going to address the partial student debt relief in the United States and the problem of debt, which is something that Professor Hudson has written a lot about. We're going to talk about the inflation crisis and some of the history of responses to the inflation. Um, that that we've seen in the US. For instance, I, I want to pick Professor Hudson's brain about Richard Nixon's response. Nixon imposed uh, price controls and froze wages for the first time since World War II. We're also going to talk about the history of the Volcker shock when Paul Volcker, who was the head of the Fed, raised interest rates to a level never seen before. We're also going to talk about Uh, Neoliberalism. I'm going to ask Professor Hudson about comments that French President Macron made about the end of abundance. And I'm going to ask Professor Hudson about disaster capitalism in Ukraine. Ukraine's leader Zelensky just did a virtual bell ringing to open the New York Stock Exchange and announced $400 billion of giveaways to foreign corporations, mostly US corporations, who are salivating to get access to Ukraine's uh, assets. And then finally, I'm going to ask Professor Hudson about the challenge to the petrodollar that China has been carrying out um, and the potential, the emergence of the so-called petro yuan, whether or not Saudi Arabia will list its oil in the yuan. So a lot of things on the table to talk about today, Professor Hudson. I'm I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about the madness going on in the world today. It's a pretty interesting time. But let's just start with something closest to home, uh, you know, you have lived and worked in the United States for many decades and been involved in, uh, you worked on Wall Street, you've been involved in advising governments, you're an economic expert for people who don't know you. I mean, I hope everyone listening and watching to this should, they should know you, they should read your work. People can find that at michael-hudson.com. I'll link to that in the description. But um, let's start with the, the recent decision by the Biden administration to announce that it's going to Pardon up to $10,000 in student debt. This is estimated to impact around $300 billion of student debt in the United States. But there's a small problem. That's a small fraction of the $1.75 trillion worth of student debt in the United States. So I'm curious what you think about this decision. Of course, the Republicans, Fox News, they were attacking Trump, uh, excuse me, they were attacking Biden and saying that this is you know, irresponsible because it's $300 billion that the government is supposedly going to lose, although it's actually just money that the government could write off. It's not like it's it's not like they are spending money. It's just debt they're writing off. But clearly, this is actually a tiny fraction of the amount of debt in of student debt in the United States. So what do you think about this decision by Biden to forgive a little student debt?
1: Of all the politicians in Congress, Biden has always been the most pro-bank and pro-financial sector, largely because he comes from Delaware which is the corporate headquarters for uh, most companies in the United States and uh, including the credit card companies also Biden has been the most hostile towards students uh, he recently characterized students uh, uh, who are going to college saying who needs a college degree a lot of them just get uh, in the uh, humanities and we really don't uh, don't need them so uh, he has uh, a of visceral uh contempt for students but as for the uh and it was biden who uh made sure that uh in the bankruptcy law that was reformed i think uh around two uh, uh over a decade ago that a student debt could not be wiped out from bankruptcy so of all the politicians biden has been the most hostile uh from a personally hostile as well as just serving the banking interests and uh, opposing the interests of students. Uh, And this is what really sets American uh, social policy and economic policy more against other countries uh, than uh, any other policy. Basically for uh, hundreds of years uh, and still in uh, many, many countries, uh, Germany to China, education is free because uh, you want uh, the population to be educated. And the, in the United States, the, the whole structure of the United States uh, politically was to divide it into uh, school districts because they all uh, realized the importance of, kind of, uh, of uh, uh, education. Basically, if education should be free, students shouldn't have to run into debt to get it. And in fact, I think in Germany, not only is education free, but if you're going to college, you're given a stipend for living costs so that you don't have to take uh, a separate job uh, at Starbucks or uh, some other um, uh, menial job to uh, pay your tuition. So if education should be free, you shouldn't run into a debt. And if you shouldn't have run into debt in the first place, the debt should be forgiven. That, should, I think, should be the, that is the basic morality of uh, most people and uh, it's not in the United States. And you're right, uh, it's uh, the amount that is so-called forgiven is only a small fraction. uh, And Biden did not even forgive the penalty fees, the late fees that have doubled and tripled the amount of student debt for many people. So uh, uh, Biden is still leaving even for the uh, low income, uh, uh people uh debts that are two or three times what it costs to get education for the first in the first place just for the banks to get these extra fees so this is a slap in the face uh of, of biden uh so typical of uh his position and of the democratic party's position towards students uh this is uh uh biden is not alone in this uh, uh the democrats were were backing him saying uh we we want to make it clear to our base the campaign donors the donor class that uh we're going to forgive uh the uh wealthy uh financial sector their carried interest charge uh and make that uh, uh, free of the income tax but we're not going to favor uh the working class uh, uh because this is the class uh the class wars back in business
0: yeah, and Professor Hudson, you've written a lot about debt. You're in, in, and in, in, in fact, an expert on the history of debt and debt forgiveness, going back to antiquity and and even before, for thousands of years. Debt forgiveness, debt jubilees, had been a a key part of government uh, govern governing society, right, to maintain stability. Yep. And in the United States, we've seen a massive skyrocketing of debt in the past several decades. Now, student loan debt. Is estimated now at 1.75 trillion. And and that is certainly something unprecedented compared to other countries, you know, imperialist, colonialist countries at a similar level of development like the US and Europe. But if you look at this graph here that shows the total debt in the United States, the vast majority is mortgage debt. Yes. And you've written a lot about mortgage debt and you've emphasized that when we talk about debt, we need to understand that the other side of the balance sheet is, is the wealth. Of the debt holders and the bond holders, right? There are $15 trillion in debt in the United States, and most of that is mortgage debt. You know, this is something that's barely ever commented on. Can you talk about how the finance capitalist model that the United States has imposed around the world is a model predicated on debt, not only in other countries, but in its own population with $15 trillion worth of debt?
1: well th- let, let's take. i want to make one point in uh, biden's twisted mind there's a silver lining for keeping the student debt on the book and not canceling it by not canceling it the uh students and the young people won't have enough money to uh qualify for a mortgage uh they'll have to continue to live at home with the parent uh, the parents so that uh, actually alleviates the mortgage debt by keeping uh graduate students too poor to afford to uh, take out uh, a mortgage because they've already committed their income to the uh, student debt. And that $1.7 you mentioned has now soared ahead just in the last two years. Student debt has soared ahead of credit card debt uh, and ahead of uh, uh, automobile debt. and. Uh, So uh, it's really become uh, the fastest-growing, largest debt, and it's the fastest-growing debt because of all the penalties for late payments. Uh, And of course, with the COVID crisis uh, and uh, uh, limited uh, uh, employment, you're going to have uh, this debt growing uh, even more. And also, the amount of paperwork that the administration imposes on uh, students trying to get debt relief. Uh, is so great that uh, a a lot of students are simply not going to be able to uh, get through the maze and uh, pierce the bureaucratic shell uh, that protects uh, the banks and the debt. So uh, obviously, uh, uh, I just want to point that out. Regarding the mortgage debt, uh, the whole policy of the Federal Reserve since uh, the 2008 uh, 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 bank crisis has been to uh, uh, bail bail out the banks by inflating, reinflating the uh, prices of uh, houses so that you have to take a larger and larger and larger uh, mortgage in order to uh, buy a house. And not only that, but now as of yesterday, the mortgage rate is uh, 6%, and I think that's the highest since the 1970s. Uh, so you not only have to pay uh, a very high price for the house, the carrying charge in uh, the mortgage is uh, basically you, within a 10-year period uh, at 6%, you actually have repaid uh, as much as you paid for the entire house, you have paid in the form of interest charges. And on the 30-year mortgage, you have paid three times as much to the banks for the house than the owner of the house got who sold it to you. So the, uh, the banks are end up uh, getting much more than the actual uh, seller uh, of the home. And uh, the way the mortgage market has uh, ended up uh, with uh, increasing uh, the debt ratio of mortgage, Americans now own uh, only about 40% of uh, the uh value of homes in other words the equity home equity has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking for most uh, of the real estate sector uh, as a portion of homes and of course if you're uh, earning less than two hundred thousand dollars a year uh you have much uh, less equity in uh, in the home and uh the basically the uh buying a home is getting on a financial treadmill uh to the point that if you uh, either have an own a home or now, if you pay the soaring rent rates, you're not going to have enough money to spend on the goods and services that are being produced. So, uh, the, the, the effect of debt is to leave less in the uh, budget for actual spending on goods and services. It's an austerity plan. Uh, and the effect is very much like the kind of austerity plan that uh, the International Monetary Fund opposes on third world uh, country uh, countries, global South countries, uh, as we say now. So basically, uh, you're right, the, uh, the economy is being sacrificed, but there's a silver lining, and that is uh, 90% of the population owe the, uh, this debt to the 10%. So there's been a sucking up of... Uh, uh, of income and wealth to the top of the pyramid. And uh, the mortgage debt has been the single largest lever that is shifting uh, wealth and uh, income from the 90% to the uh,
0: 10%. Very well said. Professor Hudson, let's talk about inflation. The United States has been going through decades high level inflation. I've asked you about this before and you've emphasized that a lot of that, that the inflation we've seen in the consumer price index recently is because of monopolization of certain key industries, because of the recovery from the COVID pandemic and bottlenecks in the supply chain and all of that. But a point that you've consistently pointed out for many decades, Professor Hudson, unlike other economists, is that this consumer price index inflation that we've seen in 2021 and 2022 is certainly new. But in general, inflation is by no means new. We've seen massive asset price inflation over the past few decades, which of course has been intentionally pushed by the financial system in the United States in order to push up the value of real estate, of stocks and bonds. Here's a graph showing asset price inflation in the United States. The green line is asset price inflation and the the purple line are interest rates set by the Fed. And you can see really from the 1990s forward, so in the neoliberal era going forward, there's been a massive skyrocketing of asset pl- price inflation. And I should point out that with the bailout after COVID and the trillions of dollars pumped into the financial sector by the government, this this big giveaway, we've seen a, a skyrocketing in asset price inflation. So I'm, I'm curious if you can expand more on this, this idea that this idea that inflation is something new, right? Because we're now seeing it in the consumer price index and also its relationship to interest rates, because this is something in a bit here, I want to ask you about some of the history of the Volcker shock and all of that, Paul Volcker. But let's start with asset price inflation, because this graph, I almost never see mentioned in kind of mainstream discussions of economics and the business press. They act as though This consumer price inflation, some people call, you know, the Biden inflation or whatever. And certainly Biden bears responsibility for the sanctions on Russia, which caused an energy crisis crisis in Europe, which led to skyrocketing prices of energy and that fueled the inflation. But why isn't this inflation, the asset price inflation that has been consistent over decades, ever discussed?
1: Well, the asset price inflation is uh, the response to the Obama depression that we're still in. Uh, in 2008, when the banks uh, crashed, uh, you had uh, Citibank being insolvent, uh, a number of other banks insolvent. The worry was that throughout the whole US economy, banks had made so many uh, junk mortgage loans uh, and lost so much money on derivative gambles that they had a negative net worth. Now the problem was uh, when uh, Obama came in, the problem was, who are you going to save? The, uh, the debtors in the economy, the victims of junk mortgages, or uh, the crooks, the victimizers, the banks that wrote the junk mortgages. Uh, and Obama came in and said, we're not going to save any of the uh, homeowners uh, who bought these uh, uh, junk mortgages. Most of them are minorities anyway. Most of them were uh, black and Hispanic uh, people who the banks, uh, especially through countrywide, uh, lending company had uh, exploited more than anyone else. Uh, Obama had invited the bankers to the White House and said, "I'm the only guy standing between you and the mob with pitchforks." Those being the people who voted for him, and saying, "Don't worry, you know uh, uh, you contributed to my campaign. I'm backing you." And so uh, he directed uh, the Federal Reserve uh, to essentially re-inflate uh, the real estate prices and the stock market so much that uh, the banks wouldn't have to be taken over into the public domain uh, for insolvency he he wanted to rebuild the bank's uh, uh, balance sheet and the reason he did it was to pump money uh, pump money into the bank and uh, they the result has been nine trillion dollars uh, of uh, essentially uh, bank liquidity that the Federal Reserve, has pushed in. Now, despite the fact that uh, it is asset price inflation, uh, the fact is that this asset inflation, this has all occurred on credit. It, it, it uh, The asset price inflation has uh, occurred when the Federal Reserve uh, makes uh, uh, so basically uh, repo swaps uh, with the banks, enabling the banks to uh, deposit uh, some of their uh, packaged mortgage loans. Or bonds, government bonds, or even junk bonds with the Fed, and they get a deposit uh, with the Fed that uh, enables them to now turn around as if it's as if the Fed was depositing money in the bank like a depositor, letting it uh, lend more and more and more uh, for real estate, uh, which has pushed up the price. Real estate is worth whatever a bank will end against it. And the banks have been uh, uh, lowering the uh, margin requirements, eas- easing the uh, uh, the terms of the loans. So the banks have uh, inflated the real estate market and also the stock and bond market. The uh, bond market from 2008 today has had the biggest bond rally in history you can imagine uh, the bond prices uh, going down to uh, below uh, 0%. This is a huge capitalization uh, uh, of the bond rate. So it's been a bonanza for uh, people who've uh, held bonds, especially uh, uh, bank bonds. uh, And it's uh, inflated the top of the pyramid. But if you inflate it on debt, then somebody has to pay the debt. And the debt, as I just said, is the 90 percent of the population. So the uh, the fact is that asset price inflation and debt deflation go together because the wealth part of the economy, the ownership part, uh, has been vastly inflated. The price of wealth relative to labor, uh, but the uh, the debtor part has been uh, uh, has been squeezed by having, to, as I said, by families. Uh, having to pay much more of their income on uh, mortgages uh, uh, or credit cards or student debt, leaving less and less uh to, to purchase uh, goods and services. So if there's a debt deflation, then how, why do we have a price inflation now? Well, the price inflation is largely a result of the war, uh, uh, the sanctions that the United States has uh, uh, imposed on on Russia. Uh, Russia was, as you know, the uh, uh, major gas exporter, uh, oil exporter and also the largest agricultural exporter in the world so if you if you uh exclude russian oil russian gas russian uh agriculture from the market you're going to have uh, this, uh a shortage of supply and you're going to have uh, the prices uh way up so the uh the uh oil energy and uh, food have been a a key element. And also uh, under the Biden administration and uh, certainly the Trump administration, there's been no enforcement of monopoly prices. Uh, So you've had uh, essentially companies have been using their monopoly power to uh, charge whatever they want. And even though there there wasn't really a shortage of gas or of uh, oil, uh, earlier this year you had a huge spike in the price for no other reason than the fact that the oil companies could charge it uh partly this was done by financial manipulations uh in the forward markets and the financial markets had a uh, bit up the price of uh, oil and gas but also the other companies have and right across the board if you had a company in a commanding uh position of being able To control uh, the market, as uh, Matt Stoller has pointed out uh, uh, often enough, uh, you've uh, essentially uh, permitted monopolies to take place. Well, uh, Biden had appointed a number of anti-monopoly officials uh, that uh, were going to try to uh, impose anti-monopoly legislation, uh, but they're not supported by the Democratic Party or the Republican Party enough to uh, really uh, empower them to... Uh, Have had much effect so
0: far? Yeah, and I had you on in June, Professor Hudson, to talk about the Fed's interest rate hike. It's now at at around two point two five percent, and there's discussion of potentially increasing it by another point seven five points, so zero point seven five percent. And there you you warned that there uh, are all signs that there's going to be a depression, an economic depression. And certainly after raising interest rates, there has been typically recessions in the past. I want to talk about some of that history because a name that's come up a lot in this discussion of inflation in the United States is Paul Volcker, who was the head of the Fed, and he was actually appointed by Jimmy Carter. He's more often associated with Ronald Reagan, but he was first appointed by Jimmy Carter and then continued with Reagan and reappointed by Reagan. In the 70s, there there was a similar crisis of consumer price index inflation, like what we've seen in the past year. And Volcker had this famous Volcker shock, and he rose interest rates to as high as 20% and then gradually dropped them. And the way that Volcker is discussed about in the business press, the financial press, is they say that he's this admirable man who was unpopular in his day but that's because he was giving people the medicine they needed, right? And he was, he was willing to do the hard thing and be unpopular in order to bring consumer price index inflation down. Can you reflect on why there was consumer price index inflation in the United States in the 70s, what was causing it? And, and this, this portrayal of Paul Volcker as like this great uh, economic wise man who saved the US economy. I'm curious what you think about the Volcker shock and his decision to raise interest rates so high and and why he's so beloved today.
1: Well, Volcker was my boss's boss at Chase Manhattan in the uh, uh, early and uh, mid-1990s. And uh, once uh, a, a week or so, there would be a uh, a meeting of uh the economists and the policy at chase and because uh i was in the economic research department and knew how to do speed writing uh i uh, was often the uh took the notes uh for these meetings so i had a chance uh to watch him and uh just before he was appointed uh i had to be at the white house for some reason and uh, uh was asked by uh, a member of the council of economic advisors you know what was it like working for Volcker. Uh, and I said, well, at the meetings, uh, people, a number of officers and, uh, would give their impression of what was going to happen. And Volcker would say, well, uh, so-and-so says this, and that's that position, and uh, you say uh, this, and uh, that's this position, so we, uh, let, let me uh, state what the argument is all about. Well, that by doing that, everybody thought, oh, he understands my position so he was very popular uh, because uh, he didn't make any enemies. He could state everybody's position and basically uh, be neutral and not take a position. Well, uh, the Council of economic advisors person said that's the guy we want uh, and he was appointed uh, about a month later uh, for the uh, the job and uh, his own person uh, his own view was uh, that uh, of uh, a banker, he'd he gone back and forth. He, he'd begun at Chase, he'd moved to the Treasury, uh, and then he actually went back to Chase, and that's something that wasn't uh, often done at the time. Uh, and uh, uh, when he went back to the Treasury again, uh, he uh, uh, and met with the Carter people. And Carter, people don't realize because he's uh, sort of a nice old man now, but uh, he was uh, viciously, viciously neoliberal, uh, much more right-wing than uh, anybody could have expected at the time. And uh, uh, I think Volcker sensed uh, where Carter was at. And uh, Volcker said that he carried around a, a piece of paper, an article with him, a chart. And the chart was... The wage levels in the construction industry and uh volker would say the job of the treasury department is to, uh or the federal i'm sorry the, the federal re, the federal reserve i'd made a slip before the federal reserve is to keep down uh, uh wage rates uh all, he said although the uh, nominal purpose of the federal reserve is to prevent inflation and support full employment, it's actually the opposite. It's to make sure there is not full employment so that there will be a reserve army of enough unemployed that wages are not going up, and of course, it's to inflate asset prices, which is just what the Federal Reserve has done. So uh, Volcker was quite aware of uh, what to do. Uh, he thought it. Uh, uh, he Today, you would say what he did was, uh, I guess, what the current Federal Reserve head uh, would say, well, uh, it, we're going to have to impose a depression to cure the inflation. And uh, for uh, Volcker, uh, curing inflation was an excuse to lower the wage levels and to bring about a, 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 a recession. And by, uh, by increasing the interest rates to 20%, it was I think 20.5% was the bank uh, uh, discount rate, uh, you had lowered bond prices uh, and packaged mortgage prices and ho- housing prices to such a low level that uh, once uh, the uh, you changed course, uh, which of course happened from the 1980s on, you'll have a huge explosion of capital gains for anybody who'd bought the bonds at those low prices uh, by by pushing interest rates to 20 percent. Volcker made a buying opportunity, a guaranteed path to doubling, tripling, quadrupling your capital on the capital gains from the rise in bond prices. Well, most people don't think of the bond prices as being the most uh, uh, important thing to talk about in the news, but actually, uh, as uh, Bill Clinton said, uh, when uh, Robert Rubin explained the facts of life to him, he said, oh, it's all about the bondholders. well, he got it, and uh, that's exactly what uh, Sheila Bear, uh had said uh, when she said she was working for uh, Obama. She said she found out it was all about the bondholders, especially the bondholders of the banks that led Obama to support uh, uh, the banks and do all of this. So uh, what uh, Volcker was doing was uh, using the Vietnam War inflation that had been uh, a bonanza for the working class uh because it had uh, created uh basically uh uh, a drive for employment uh the guns and butter economy had created uh rising uh wage levels uh you did have guns but you also had a lot of butter and uh that was really what was ended uh you did keep the guns part of the economy but uh act uh while keeping the guns part Got uh, squeezed down uh, uh, the the butter part, and uh, that was the, the idea that uh, he in order to make the industrial economy thrive and make profits, he thought you need low wages. And by lower by interest keeping interest rates high, lowering employment to the point that wages went down, you were creating a uh, enough of a profit that you would somehow create a reindustrial economy. Well, we all know what happened. The economy was deindustrialized under the uh, financialization policies of the Reagan uh, and uh, Bush administration, and Carter admin and the uh, Clinton administration uh, that were coming up. So, but that was at least the idea at that time. I don't think that anyone, even Volker himself, had an idea that uh, what was going to come after him was going to be deindustrialization. He thought it would be uh, we're make uh, lower wage rates would make industrial profits and uh, help America uh, regain its uh, uh, industrial power.
0: And Professor Hudson, can you talk about what caused the consumer price index inflation in the 70s? This is a graph showing CPI inflation changes in price. And you can see that there was a, a, a big peak in the 70s into the 80s. And it's been relatively low since then until past the past year. Uh, of course people probably know from the interviews that I've done with you and um, from reading you know, uh, your amazing books like um, Super Imperialism and others, you talked a lot about the Nixon shock and how important that was to understand the financial system today when in 1971, Richard Nixon took the dollar off gold. And there, at the beginning of the Nixon shock, there was a- an inflation crisis. And he responded in an interesting way, in a way that you can't even discuss today. It's no longer on the table for discussion. He Nixon imposed price controls and froze wages as well. But he imposed price controls. Now, in this most recent inflation crisis, I, I didn't see anyone in the mainstream calling for Biden to impose price controls. Of course, they would they would all say that if the government imposes price controls, it would lead to a shortage of goods and scarcity and all this. So, uh, can you talk about Nixon's response to the inflation? And then you mentioned that Jimmy Carter, really, even before Reagan, ushered in neoliberalism. What, what, after Nixon imposed those policies, there was the inflation came back. So why did the inflation come back in the 1970s and 80s?
1: Well, I remember, I think that uh, Kennedy also imposed uh, price controls on steel, or steel. Uh, uh, there were early price controls uh, on the steel industry uh, to prevent it. Uh, the inflation of the 70s was a result of America's military spending in Southeast Asia. Uh, copper. Uh, every uh, soldier in Vietnam used an average one ton of copper per year in in bullets. Uh, that so there was a a huge copper increase that. Uh, went, uh, I think the price uh, uh, tripled. You had- uh, and the-
0: the- Sorry to cut you off, Professor Hudson. And that was, of course, a factor in the 1973 CIA coup against Salvador Allende, Chile being one of the world's leading producers of copper, the Anaconda Corporation wanting to get access to that copper.
1: The Anaconda, uh, it already pr- had uh, been producing the copper. It was the-, uh,
0: the that- well, well, Allende nationalized uh, yeah, the yeah, copper, it, of course.
1: The, uh, that's another, uh, a long story. Uh, that I was very involved in, but it's another story. Uh, basically, it, it, the the government was the, spending so much on military that uh, you couldn't have guns and butter, and that's why that's where the guns and butter phrase came from. I think it may have come from Terence McCarthy uh, using it. At least he uh, was the main expounder of uh, that theory, along with Seymour Melman. Of uh, Columbia University, uh, and it was very clear that uh, the the military uh, and the consumer economy uh, was pushing up uh, demand uh, so much that uh, uh, there, there, were sh- there there was there there was a shortage, and there was a shortage of labor uh, because of, of uh, uh, the labor that was being diverted uh, was needed for the military, uh, basically. So it was a military inflation in the. Uh, 70s. That's quite different from uh, today's inflation. Uh, Today's inflation is uh, much more of, uh, well, the companies can do it. Uh, We're now in a much more highly monopolized economy. Uh, We're in a deregulated economy. Back uh, in uh, the 70s under Nixon, uh, his policies actually, when you look back, uh, they were much more liberal than uh, the policies of anybody who's come uh, after him. Uh, simply because he was pragmatic. It wasn't because he was a liberal, but because it it was uh, accepted by Republicans and Democrats that uh, when uh, you have uh, inflation stemming from companies using purely monopoly power, uh, the right thing to do is to prevent them from raising their prices so that uh, the economy will not be uh, bled by uh, super rents, monopoly rents uh, that are paid uh, uh, to the monopolies. Well, that was before the uh, the monopoly lobbyists uh, fought back under uh, basically the Republicans and uh, the whole attempt to uh, uh, put Bork uh, on the Supreme Court and later to control the Supreme Court has been very largely an attempt by the monopolists uh, to do to the Supreme Court what they've done to the Democratic Party, and uh, the other political parties to basically have uh, uh, privatize uh, the political process and the legal process to uh, give a free reign uh, to the uh, monopolists at the top of the pyramids to make their money not by employing uh, uh, labor to produce goods and services for a profit, but simply by charging more for what they're doing, simply by getting monopoly rent and uh, financial rents and uh natural resource rents, uh, which is where most of the money is made today, along with capital gains, the asset price inflation, which are euphemized by capital gains, but it's certainly not industrial capital gains, it's finance capital gains.
0: Yeah, and Professor Hudson, I have, I have a kind of complicated question, and I really want to pick your brain on this. The issue of interest rates is something that I've been researching a lot because there's been this debate about it in, in the past year or two about the Fed interest rates and i'm curious if you think that there that if it's correlation or causation in that in with the rise of the neoliberal era from the night excluding you know after the volcker shock in this neoliberal era in general there's been a, a tendency toward dropping interest rates and of course we've seen that after the financial crash of 2008 and the policy of quantitative easing interest rates were zero or even technically even below zero and the, the, there was this extremely loose monetary policy, basically the government just investing in all of these you know junk bonds and and giving these this massive cash infusion to the financial sector. I'm curious if you think that that's just cor- correlation or causation. do you think that like if you look at this graph just from you know from an ignorant perspective, not knowing anything about fiscal policy, that in the in the Keynesian era from, you know, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, there was a general tendency toward gradually increasing the Federal Reserve's interest rates. And in the neoliberal era, there's been a tendency toward dropping those interest rates all all the way to zero. Is that correlation or causation? Do you think in general, does dropping the interest rates, obviously raising the interest rates can cause a depression, which hurts working people. But at the same time, you've pointed out that, of course, there There are negatives to raising interest rates like we're seeing now, and that it's going to make average consumers have to pay a little bit more on their mortgages and car loans. But it seems to me that the people who benefit most from low interest rates are not average working people who are trying to buy a house. It seems like it's actually stockholders and bondholders and corporations. And there's been this big bubble in the past 10, 20 years, where there's such a loose expansionary monetary policy that All There was this big bubble of all these corporations and startups that basically made made no money, Uber, Twitter, all these big tech companies in Silicon Valley. They've never really made money. They were just basically, they were able to thrive because they were surviving on free money and all these zero interest loans. And and now that bubble is kind of bursting. So do you think that in some ways, even though there could be a, a depression in the short term, raising interest rates is can in some ways be better for working people because it's the financial sector that benefits most? I, I don't know. It's a difficult question. I'm curious what you think.
1: That chart is very important, but it's very misleading the way you uh, well, put it by itself. Uh, what it should be alongside of it, uh, the interest rate chart, would be the uh, uh, the interest rate on credit cards and, uh, and uh, late fees. At the same time, you had 1 10th percent of uh, interest rates uh, all uh, uh, towards the end there. You had credit card rates of 19 percent. Uh, and penalty, And if you're late in your credit card, as most people have become, the interest rate is 29 percent. So how do you, you, you have a steady rate a rise in the rates that uh, uh, debtors have to pay, that uh, 99% of the population have to pay. So the interest rates that fell were the interest rates that, were, uh, uh, that banks had to pay uh, to the Federal Reserve and to each other, uh, and that uh, bank customers, uh, financial customers, had to pay for, say, borrowing uh, from a bank at uh, maybe 1% and buying corporate stock that could could pay three dividends of three, four or 5%. So uh, the low interest rates created what's called arbitrage for uh, the financial sector. Borrow cheap uh, from the banks and buy a higher yielding asset. You could uh, uh, borrow at less than 1% and buy a foreign bond that's yielding more. That's called the carry trade. That's what, what Japan, Uh, did did so much in in the 1990s, or you could mainly, you could borrow uh, at at, uh, 1% and buy junk bonds that would pay uh, much, much higher uh, prices. And so, so much uh, borrowing from the banks was done to buy junk bonds that the interest rates on junk bonds actually came down, even though the risk didn't come down. Uh, It turns out that uh, interest rates don't really reflect risk at all, interest rates reflect uh, the opportunity to uh, make an arbitrage uh, trade uh, uh, or a straddle uh, in uh, the financial sector. So uh, you're you're right, the people who benefited from the uh, interest rates were corporate raiders and uh, speculators. And uh, the people who were borrowing at a low interest rates to uh, buy uh, buy real estate. Now, in the past, the way to make, uh, uh, before uh, 2008, uh, the way to make uh, a profit in real estate was, well, you take out a loan and you buy real estate and the real estate value will go up and the price will go up. Well, uh, what happened uh, is it, uh, uh, with private capital is uh, they said, well, we can get uh, uh, we can borrow from the banks at a very low price, and we can buy uh, the houses as absentee owners, and uh, we can make much more money in rent than uh, the low interest rates we have to pay. So the low interest rates help finance uh, uh, large uh, real estate uh, uh, private capital companies to come in and begin to become absentee owners of. Uh, uh, a rising amount of housing in the United States, which is uh, what has uh, turned the home ownership rates uh, way down when, uh, at the point uh, Obama took office, uh, the, uh, about 59% of Amer- uh, Americans were homeowners. Now it's under 50%, it's, fall- it's fallen by about 10 percentage points. Uh, as a result of the uh, obama evictions and the uh, the law the rules that uh, obama uh, put in the anti uh, the anti-black rules, the anti-hispanic rules, the anti-minority rules and the anti-consumer rules that uh, obama put uh, uh, put in uh, that have essentially transformed the real estate uh, market away from a home ownership economy into a rental economy where you're recreating, a landlord class financed by uh, the banking class and uh, merging between the finance, insurance and the real estate sector, the fire sector, uh, it's the fire sector that's really taken off since 2008 and uh, the, the shape of it, not simply that the economy uh, is uh, polarized, it's that the shape of the economy has shifted away from an industrial manufacturing agricultural economy into a rentier economy, into a fire sector economy, uh, even in, not even an agricultural economy in the sense of farmers and uh, dairy uh, people making uh, money off the farms. It's uh, it's the trading companies, uh, Archer, uh, uh, Daniels, and uh, uh, the, the other companies uh, that are essentially the marketing uh, choke points that have uh made money so you've had the american economy since 2008 turned into a, a choke point economy uh you you need housing you need food you need uh medical care uh and all of these have become uh, monopoly rent gouging opportunities uh that have uh, essentially uh paid the uh, wealthy one percent or ten percent uh very very uh highly uh but squeezed uh, the rest of the economy
0: So this might be a a very simplistic question. Do you think that it's fair to, or or, let me me rephrase the question. Is a looser monetary policy in general better for the financial sector and the speculators and a tighter monetary policy is in general better for working people? Or is that just one factor among many and it's too complicated?
1: Well, the key is who is going to be the debtor and who's going to be the creditor. Uh, if a looser monetary policy would lo- would lower your credit card rates uh, from 19 uh, percent to one percent or under, you know uh, that the banks get to borrow. Fine. Then instead of uh, you could uh, pay off your uh, credit card debt and instead of paying 29 percent with a penalty fee, you'd be paying one percent. That kind of loose monetary policy would be great. A monetary policy of forgiving student debt uh, uh, would be uh, great. Uh, uh, But uh, what's called a loose monetary policy has been a very, very tight monetary policy for most of the population, but not for Wall Street, not for the financial sector. So you have to think of the American economy as divided into two sectors, the productive economy, uh, 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 goods and services, production and consumption, and then the wealth economy. Uh, assets and uh, debts, Uh, the real estate sector, the financial sector, stocks and bonds, and uh, ownership of uh, monopoly companies.
0: Very well said. Very well said. I want to pivot a bit and talk about the situation in in Europe. Uh, Professor Hudson, you have said in the past that the economic war on Russia that the U.S. and the EU are waging which has caused an energy crisis inside Europe as winter is soon approaching. You have said that this is basically going to turn the Eurozone into a dead zone, economically speaking. We've seen that German industry, German capitalists are in fact protesting against the government, saying that they really need cheap Russian energy. Um, We've seen German labor unions warning that their industry could go bankrupt and could be outsourced off. It could be uh, offshored, like we saw with the deindustrialization of the U.S., um, and and French President Macron, who, of course, is an investment banker, we should always keep in mind his own class interests. He gave this very interesting, you could say, historic speech in which Macron announced the end of abundance. And I just want to read one quote from this from The Guardian here. Macron said France and the French felt they were living through a series of crises, each worse than the last. And the French president said what we are currently living through is a kind of major tipping point or a great upheaval. We are living the end of what could have seemed an era of abundance, the end of the abundance of products, of technologies that always seem available, the end of the abundance of land and materials, including water. Now, I basically interpreted this as Europe acknowledging that neoliberalism, this this financial... The parasitic phase of capitalism that you've spent so much time analyzing, writing about, it's collapsing essentially in and on itself. But I guess you disagree. So what do you take of, of Macron's speech of the end of abundance?
1: When he said the end of abundance, what he, re- what he really meant was the beginning of an IMF austerity program applied to Europe. And uh, the uh, end of abundance for the 90 percent is a bonanza of abundance for the one percent, for the financial sector. Uh, they're making a huge, huge gains in all of this. Uh, for instance, the uh, electric companies uh, in uh, uh, in in Europe uh, are allowed to charge electricity uh, in proportion to the highest price marginal input. Well, the highest price input now, of course, is natural gas. So even though most of the electric companies uh, will make their uh, uh, electricity in uh, the usual way through uh, atomic energy, or oil, uh, or other uh, sources of energy, uh, they've had a huge marginal uh, increase uh, in uh, energy prices uh, for all of this. Uh, the, the end of abundance mean, means uh, when you look at it and say, what's the, on the other side of the balance sheet? It's uh, austerity for the population means we are now going to put the class war in business here. We're going to show you what European socialism is. European socialism is the same as it is uh, in uh, the United States, the Democratic Party. It's lower wages and uh, 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 for uh, enabling higher profit opportunities uh, for the companies. It's going to be... Uh, uh, end of abundance for wage earners, uh, but it'll be a bonanza for uh, the monopoly owners for, uh, and, and for, uh, for the banks. Uh, in England, for instance, uh, you can see, see this uh, energy crisis uh, mostly. They decide, uh, they, uh, they've announced uh, last week that I think uh, the average electricity bill uh, per family is going to go up by about 5,000 pounds which means about $6,000 a year for fa- just to heat the, the home, uh, just for families. Uh, and uh, for businesses like pubs, uh, banks have asked for a $10,000 deposit so that the pubs, uh, if they go bankrupt, can't wipe out uh, the amount of money that uh, they give uh, to the banks. So the banks have right, uh, uh, right away said, well, we're going to make sure that as energy prices go up, uh, we get uh, to make it, uh, we don't have to suffer the end of abundance uh, certainly the, uh, uh, the, the the large companies are and uh, the, uh, the uh, from the u.s point of view and basically the sanctions of Europe are a u.s policy uh, this is a bonanza for American companies that are replacing uh, the the German industrial companies uh, uh, in Europe you had uh, on uh, uh, Wednesday, uh, uh, Germany's foreign minister, Baerbach, I think, go to Poland or Czechoslovakia and said that uh, uh, I'm uh, my job is to support Ukraine. It's not to represent my voters. I don't care what my voters want. I know that they're unhappy, as you've just pointed out, uh, but uh, I'm going to uh, support the sanctions on Ukraine. The most important thing is to keep up the sanctions on Russia. So You're basically having Uh, Almost all of the European Union officials and English officials uh, are acting as uh, local proxies uh, or uh, proxies for NATO. Uh, And NATO is really running European politics and it shows that it's uh, Macron could have said, when he said we're at the end of abundance and the beginning of austerity, he meant uh, we're at the end of democratic politics, Uh, we're at the end of social democracy. Social democracy wouldn't do what they're doing, uh, and socialist policy wouldn't do what they're doing. He said, we've turned uh, socialism into neoliberalism, uh, just as Tony Blair uh, did in England, and uh, uh, Sturmer is doing uh, today with the British Labour Party. You've had uh, the end of any kind of social democratic politics and uh, basically a concentration of policy, uh, I guess you could call it in the Davos class, Uh, uh, neoliberal class, it's really been centralized uh, uh, largely under US direction and US uh, financing. uh, And uh, the Cold War, uh, that's why the United States uh, in uh, discussions with Europe has said these sanctions and the Ukraine war are only the opening opening, uh, uh, overture for what's going to go on 20 years. What's at issue is how we are going to restructure the entire world economy. and uh, In order to restructure the entire world economy in the way that we want and that the Davos crowd wants, is to uh, you have to re- make sure that it is indeed a unipolar economy, not a, mo- uh, a multipolar economy. We first got to knock out Russia so that it can't support China. Then we've got to uh, uh, oppose China. India, Iran, the rest of Asia. We've got to make sure that uh, the United States, uh, with our European uh, partners, uh, can impose this neoliberal uh, financialized economy uh, over uh, the entire world and uh, uh, make sure that the dream of the 19th century classical economists, uh, uh, social democracy, uh, and socialism uh, was only a nightmare from our point of view.
0: Yeah, well, maybe I was much too optimistic saying this is the end of neoliberalism. I guess I think you're right that what we're now seeing is that this is the end of the last vestiges of European social democracy and the very same policies that the IMF and World Bank, the structural adjustment and and Washington consensus policies that they imposed on the global south for decades are now coming home to Europe itself. But um, I I do want to talk about something very, very related. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the German foreign minister, Baerbach, comments in, at this conference in, in the Czech Republic where she said, what's important for us is this war on Russia and supporting Ukraine, regardless of what voters want. Now, Ukraine itself is being subjected to these same neoliberal shock therapy policies. And a friend of mine, a Canadian activist and writer, Jake Callio and I wrote an article Uh, over at multipolarisa.com, and it's titled West Prepares to Plunder Post-War Ukraine with Neoliberal Shock Therapy, Privatization, Deregulation, Slashing Worker Protections. This is a conference that was held this July in Switzerland called the Ukraine Recovery Conference in which, which a bunch of Western governments and corporate leaders met together to plan neoliberal shock therapy to impose on Ukraine. And we couldn't have seen a more blatant symbol of this than the fact that Ukraine's Western-backed leader, Zelensky, on September 6th, he opened the bell digitally, at least via Zoom in the morning, at the New York Stock Exchange. And I mean, it's really incredible. There's photos here. It says so much. Hashtag Advantage Ukraine, the slogan. We are free. We are strong. We are open for business. And if you read what the, the financial press is saying about this, This is from this website, Business Wire. Uh, President Zelensky rings bell at New York Stock Exchange to signify Ukraine is open for business. And it notes this is a $400 billion in investment options. It spans public-private partnerships, privatization, and private ventures. A USAID-supported project team of investment bankers appointed by Ukraine's Ministry of Economy We'll work with businesses interested in investing. They quote the president of the New York Stock Exchange Group, who said that, you know, uh, we stand for freedom, investor protection, and unfettered access to capital. We are pleased to welcome President Zelensky virtually to the New York Stock Exchange Bell Podium, a symbol of freedom and opportunity our US capital markets have enabled around the globe. So I mean this to me it says everything it points out that Ukraine has been working with the G7 and the EU to reform the country's tax system that is cut taxes on corporations and the rich to create a new legal framework and to adopt new rules and legislations to allow companies to build a transparent corporate structure attract foreign investment more easily and use additional mechanisms to protect intangible assets so I mean Honestly, what they're announcing is a massive corporate giveaway. What, what do you think about this policy of Ukraine being open for business? Well, it certainly
1: didn't say uh, everything. But every, uh, The day that uh, uh, after Labor Day, significantly, uh, Tuesday on September 6th, the day that uh, Zelensky rang the bell at the stock exchange, he had an editorial in the Wall Street Journal that did say everything. He said, what we've done is abolished the right of labor to join labor unions. We have abolished the right of uh, uh, collective bargaining. Uh, uh, every uh, uh, wage agreement is going to be an individual choice between the worker and the employer. That's a fair market. Uh, the, uh, we're abolishing all of labor's rights that are in the constitution. We are rejecting the uh, uh, European Union Labor laws. We are rejecting everything that the uh, UN International Labor Organization said. Uh, uh, Labor, we have reduced labor under the new law that I have just passed to absolute uh, abject dependency. So if you uh, work in Ukraine, not only are we going to give you uh, whatever. uh, Uh, the kleptocrats, uh, you can uh, buy from the kleptocrats, giving them an appropriate markup uh, and owning it, but uh, you will have a completely docile labor force such as no country has seen since uh, the era of Uh, Pinochet. And you've got to read the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial. It's jaw-dropping. It is uh, uh, absolutely, uh, you can... It's like a parody of what a socialist would have uh, written about how the class war would be put in uh, into action by uh, uh, a uh, fascist uh, government. Uh, it, this is literally what fascism is. So of course he was welcomed on the stock exchange for, for abolishing labor's rights. You could not have a more black and white uh, uh, example from then now uh, what you've just pointed out.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really sad considering that Ukraine already is the poorest country in Europe and it's one of the most corrupt countries in Europe, even according to these metrics of like Western government backed organizations. So we've seen that after the overthrow of the Soviet union in 1991, that, the, in in Russia, in particular, there was this brutal neoliberal shock therapy. Gorbachev just died. You know, he he helped bring this in. Gorbachev did this famous Pizza Hut commercial, basically showing that he you know he sold out his country for Pizza Hut. And we saw that under Yeltsin, this alcoholic U.S. puppet in Russia, the life expectancy of Russians de- decreased by several years. According to UNICEF, millions of Russians died in excess deaths because of the neoliberal shock therapy imposed on Russia. And of course, Ukraine suffered, but the neoliberal shock therapy imposed on Ukraine wasn't as severe as it was on Russia. And there still are some state-owned assets in Ukraine that all of these Western corporations are just frothing at the bit. They're, you know, they're salivating about trying to get their hooks into and to privatize all of these assets. So this is a country that is already the poorest in Europe, It's already one of the most corrupt countries on earth. It has a massive problem with far-right extremism. And now it's being flooded with $40 billion of weapons just from the US, billions of dollars more weapons from Europe. I mean, this seems like such a massive powder keg. I can't even imagine how disastrous it'll be. Considering the effect of the neoliberal shock therapy imposed on Chile, you mentioned under Pinochet, the neoliberal shock therapy imposed on Russia and the disastrous consequences. I mean, can you, what do you think this is going to do, not only to Ukraine, but to Europe?
1: Well, this is exactly what uh, uh, Mr. Macron said when he said the end of affluence. Uh, the Ukrainian uh, labor force has just uh, experienced uh, the end of affluence uh, in uh, neoliberal style. Uh, And as uh, Mr. Zelensky said, uh, it may be the end of affluence for the labor force, but it's going to be a bonanza for you uh, investors in the New York Stock Exchange. Come on in, join the party. Uh, For uh, somebody's loss is turned into somebody else's gain, and that's what happens in. uh, A class war that's a zero-sum game. There's uh, no attempt at all to raise uh, living standards. And uh, the problem, uh, you said uh, Ukraine is uh, the poorest country in Europe, but Zelensky said, it's not poor enough. Uh, He said, you think this is something? Uh, Wait wait till our new law takes effect. That'll really show you what it means to be the poorest country in Europe. Uh, But it'll also be the richest country uh, in Europe for the uh, 1%, because uh, uh, the uh, as you just pointed out, the uh, the kleptocrat class there was uh, uh, the most corrupt. I've I've met some of them, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's an experience.
0: All right, Professor Hudson, I want to. Uh, I know you don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to ask a final question here, and then um, we can start moving toward wrapping up. I do. There were a few uh, questions in the comments that I want to address as well. And there's been a really lively discussion in the comments. It's always great to see. But um, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I also wanted to ask you about the petrodollar. There have been signs that the petrodollar, which Saudi Arabia established in the 1970s by selling its oil in the dollar, that era might be coming to a close, or if not ending, at least it has a new challenger. There was a report in the Wall Street Journal that Saudi Arabia is now considering Selling its oil in the yuan. And, and it probably will continue selling it in dollars, but maybe they'll have a joint system where you can buy it in either yuan or dollars. This is from March of this year. And since then, there have been other developments. There are reports that Chinese President Xi Jinping is actually going to take a trip soon to Saudi Arabia, which would be historic because this is going to be one of his first trips abroad since the COVID pandemic. And this also explains why President Joe Biden of the U.S. recently just visited Saudi Arabia. Clearly, he was trying to pressure Riyadh and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, to cut ties with China and Russia. Um, You know, Saudi Arabia has increasing military ties with Russia as well. And actually, Saudi Arabia is buying Russian oil for domestic consumption below market price and then selling its own oil on the market. So anyway, the point is that there there is more and more reports now. That the petrodollar could be challenged by the petro yuan. What do you think about this and China's, you know, increasing relations with Saudi Arabia?
1: I think we're seeing a multipolar financial system. Uh, you're, it, it, this is part of the de-dollarization of uh, the whole rest of the world. I think that Saudi Arabia uh, was uh, felt under attack for two reasons. Number one. Ah, uh, the United States uh, criticizing the fact that it uh, killed a foreign critic. Uh, the, the, to Saudi Arabia, this is America's interference with its uh, philosophy, where if if somebody disagrees with you, you kill them. Uh, secondly, America was uh, protesting uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, butchering of uh, uh, of uh, the Yemen Yemenis, and uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia thought. Uh, well, they're threatening not to sell us arms if we're going to use them to kill Yemenis. We'd better diversify. Uh, And most of all, uh, uh, all of the uh, wealthy uh, sovereign funds of the world have been shocked by how the United States uh, announced that this year, if a country does something we don't like, and that would include Saudi Arabia, we're going to grab all of its reserves. We grabbed Afghanistan's reserves because we don't like the way they treat women. We, we grabbed Russia's reserves because uh, uh, they wanted to have a multipolar world. We grabbed Venezuela's reserves. Well, what's going to stop them from uh, all of a sudden grabbing Saudi Arabia's reserves? Uh, any, uh, per, uh, any multi-billionaire is going to diversify uh, their investments and diversify the uh Assets, And I think Saudi Arabia thought, well, we're going to be doing a lot of uh, trade with China because who else are we going to buy our manufactures from? We're not going to buy them from Europe because that's uh, finished. We're not going to buy them from America because that's deindustrialized. Be we're going to have to uh, uh, make our own pivot to Asia. Uh, and uh, that means that uh, we're, they're going to want to be paid in their own currency. So of course, we're going to want to begin uh, selling, uh, uh, pricing our oil. Uh, in their currency so that there can be a mutual uh, trade and uh, we're not going to be uh, 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 suffer from uh, uh, ups and downs and squiggles in the foreign exchange rate that's caused by U.S. intervention or U.S. sanctions. Uh, the United States is driving Saudi Arabia and driving every country out of the dollar is uh, by its, uh, its statements that if you have dollars invested in treasury bonds or in U.S. banks, we can grab them, and that's how we can control the world. Well, if you're going to tell the world that, uh, this is not a way to uh, Everybody had thought of the dollar as being something unpolitical and uh, objective. And uh, they, they were closing their eyes to the fact that holding dollars is a loan to the US government, uh, that mo- basically uh, the, is created, uh, debt is created by America's military uh, policy and military spending abroad. So all of a sudden they realize the whole dollarized financial system is an extension of the Pentagon and the military industrial complex. And uh, they're, uh, th- they're becoming more and more bossy. We've seen what they've just done to Europe. What if America would do to us in Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries what they just did to Germany and to England and to their friends and uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to Russia, Venezuela? Uh, we don't want to. We we can't afford to take the risk of depending on America. So, uh, to use uh, Putin's phrase, America is no longer agreement capable that means that it's no longer safe as an investment uh, uh, place.
0: Yeah, uh, Professor Hudson, um, I actually I had one other question that I forgot to ask because we mentioned Chile earlier. And I know I don't want to keep you too long. I know you're a busy man. Um, we just saw that Chile had a referendum to vote on a new constitution. And in that new constitution, it wouldn't have necessarily nationalized the natural resources and minerals of Chile, but it would have been a step toward protecting them and at least putting some slight restrictions on foreign corporations from exploiting the huge copper and lithium reserves in Chile. And there was a massive campaign by right-wing oligarchs, multimillionaires and billionaires in the media to demonize this new constitution, and it was voted against. It was voted down. Um, It was not passed. And there, of course, is a is a long history of Chile uh, being exploited by foreign powers because of its large mineral reserves. You mentioned um, your your time working in the banking sector and the role of you know U.S. corporations in uh, trying to get the copper in Chile after Salvador Allende, the socialist president who was elected after he nationalized the copper, which which was a significant factor in the CIA coup in Chile in 1973 before we talk about that really quickly i just want to point out that jeff bezos who's of course the founder of amazon one of the richest people in human history estimated at 200 billion dollars in wealth he owns the the washington post and before this this referendum in chile the washington post editorial board published an article lobbying against the new constitution and what was incredible about this article is the first paragraph is not about democracy, it's not about the horrible war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by Pinochet. It's actually about lithium. The first word in this editorial board article from The Washington Post is about how Chile sits on the world's largest lithium reserves. That's reason enough to pay attention to Chile's constitutional referendum. So I'm curious if you can talk about you know the history of u s corporations trying to exploit. Chile's copper and lithium. And maybe you can respond to this this media uh, propaganda demonizing a, a mild attempt at not even nationalizing the minerals, but just putting restrictions on foreign corporations.
1: It, it's not really about lithium or copper itself. It's about the pollution and uh, that is caused by mining. Uh, if a company comes in and mines uh, lithium, there's, uh it. Going to create a lot of uh, uh, environmental uh, problems, very much like an oil slick, like, uh, like the uh, American oil companies that went into uh, Ecuador and other countries and had a big oil spill. And uh, the countries were not allowed, were not able to uh, recover the cost of the of cleaning up the oil spill and the damage to the economy uh, done by the oil companies. Same thing in, in lithium. Uh, How are you going to make a, the the constitution is basically, if we make a contract with a foreign uh, investor developing lithium, uh, they're they're going to want just to dig the mine, take it out and leave a mess behind, sort of like uh, drilling an oil well and then capping it. And then the oil well is going to uh, leak and leak and leak more and more as the pipe uh, rusts. And you're going to have oil in the water supply. Well, you're going to have uh, lithium being a a huge uh, environmental disaster. You're also going to need a huge government expenditure on infrastructure uh, of transportation and uh, of uh, electrification and power uh, and roads uh, to to the lithium. Uh, Who is going to pay for all of this infrastructure? Uh, Chile might get some dollars in foreign exchange for the lithium, but it would have to uh, uh, have a huge. It's called external economies, external to the balance sheet or off-balance sheet costs of this. Who is going to be liable for the off-balance sheet costs and the cleanup costs of the lithium? That's what it's. It's all about. It's not Chile's. Would be quite happy to sell lithium as it's quite happy to sell its copper uh, uh, as long as uh, it can make a national benefit from uh, selling the raw material. And really that's what it has, uh, uh, of the raw material. But uh, the problem is when you're dealing with a messy uh, uh, mineral, sort of like the uh, rare earth minerals that also create a lot of problems, which is why uh, China is one of the few countries uh, that uh, has uh, dominated the rare earth uh, 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 market because it's willing to tolerate all of the environmental destruction that uh, the mines uh, uh, create, well, other countries don't want to uh, uh, entail to take a risk on the environmental destruction. So it's really, how do you think about cor- corporate investment? Do you think of just what's on the uh, balance sheet for the company, what it spends, and what it uh, the the sales price and the profit it makes, or do you think of uh, the uh, uh minerals industry is being uh involving all of these external economies uh that was the whole disaster of uh, the world bank and why the world bank has been so destructive since uh, uh the time it was formed uh, and began to make uh loans to the uh, global south countries yeah it uh it it would tell global south countries to uh make exports uh and the loans it would make would be roads for export uh porks for export, that uh, the companies would take over all of the cost of producing the raw materials and the agricultural crops, the plantation crops for exports, leaving uh, all of the profits for the companies that invest. And uh, the countries are stuck with the foreign debt and uh, inflated prices to hire U.S. companies to uh, build the ports and the roads and all of the infrastructure loans uh, that the World Bank would uh, would, uh, lend for. They're finally becoming aware uh, in South America uh, that uh, the cost of, uh, 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 including the foreign exchange cost of building infrastructure, costs much more than the export proceeds that they get. It's the tail wagging the dog, and they realize that the economic doctrine that they've been told that excludes all of the social costs from the balance sheet of uh, national income and exports and uh, uh, profits is uh, a tunnel vision. And they're trying to break away from the tunnel vision. And of course, the the companies uh, uh, back the economic uh, profession, which is all tunnel vision. The economic profession say... uh, ignore the external costs, ignore the cleanup costs. That's not what economics is all about. Well, the fact is it's what it should be all about. And more and more of the countries are realizing that uh, you have to think of uh, uh, economics as a whole system that includes the environment, uh, which is, uh, it used to be uh, already in the 1840s, 170 years ago, uh, the United States uh, uh, was developing uh, national uh, income uh, analysis to take environmental destruction into uh consideration but uh, all of that has been uh, uh rejected by uh fr- a free market economics The free market says uh, it's, uh a free market is one where all of the profits go for the exporter and all of the external costs and pollution are are stuck with with the uh, uh the host country well it turns out it's a host to uh, host parasite uh relationship basically so there's a, an argument in Shelley over what uh the economics is all about
0: well um i know we're, we're running out of time here i just want to there were i think one or two questions that are brief here from the super chat comments this is from uh babylon um they said this a, they wrote please ask michael to explain why the us dollar continues to be so strong obviously this is a very open-ended question but well, a, it's so strong because
1: of what we talked about at the very beginning of this show. It's strong because uh, Europe has uh, created economic suicide. Uh, if, if Europe is unable to uh, produce industrial exports, if the European steel companies are closing down, the uh, fertilizer companies are closing down, the Italian uh, glass companies are closing down because uh, you need gas to make glass and all of a sudden the price goes up, uh, they're not going to be making much money, uh, and uh, the uh, pound sterling is the dollar is going up against sterling. It's not that the dollar is rising; it's that sterling is going down, uh, and uh, the yen is going down by holding uh, Japanese interest rates low, and the euro is going down by uh, its uh, uh, following the. Uh, uh, NATO uh, sanctions policy. So, uh, this is really uh, a policy of other countries mismanaging their economy, not that the United States is uh, actively doing everything positive except uh, positively uh, disrupting uh, Europe and uh, uh, England.
0: And speaking of England, a lot of people in the comments have been pointing out that the latest news that Queen Elizabeth has died. While we were doing this interview today on the stream, they announced that she had died. i don't know if you have any thoughts on that
1: no uh I mean she pretty much played out of uh stayed out of politics and just uh played a ceremonial uh role that uh i think uh certainly helped their tourist trade uh I don't know what the royal family does except uh sort of pose uh uh, for tourists, it'll be very interesting. Uh, uh, Prince Charles always had much more of a concern for environment and uh, was much more of uh, uh, broad-minded and uh, probably activist uh, than Queen Elizabeth was. So he has a chance to really uh, make his uh, point of view uh, more uh, open and perhaps uh, play some kind of uh, much more active political role than the uh, uh, the monarch did, where uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth thought she should stay out of uh, economic and political affairs, not uh, not be activist. Uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, whether Charles uh, puts some of his uh, personal uh, views and convictions into uh, action.
0: Yeah, and I'll say it's, it, I mean, Elizabeth really represented a certain generation. Let's not forget when Elizabeth was a child. She was taught by her uncle, who was an avowed Nazi, to Nazi salute. And there's this famous photo of her as a child, Nazi saluting. And for me, it says a lot about the British royal family and its attempt to rebrand, as you said, to appeal to tourists, it, erasing this ugly history of support for fascism, of genocidal colonialism, and all of that. So we, the British monarchy moves into a new era. We see the new ultra neoliberal, uh, conservative Prime Minister Liz Truss. So There's a lot lot to say there, but um, Professor Hudson, as we wrap up, what projects are you working on now? Is there anything that you wanna plug? I I will link in the description to your website, michael-hudson.com and encourage everyone to check it out. What are you working on right now?
1: Well, I'm finishing a book that I've been working on for 20 years, the sequel to Forgive Them Their Debts. And the book is uh, The Collapse of Antiquity. It's about how uh, Greece and Rome Uh, basically collapsed as a result of the failure to cancel the debts uh, and the class war of the creditor oligarchy. Uh, And the big point is that uh, what made Western civilization different? What made Greece and Rome break from the Near East is the fact that democracies are not very good at uh, uh, resisting financial oligarchies. And uh, in Greece and Rome, especially Rome, The oligarchy took over uh, at the point where it overthrew the kings and established uh, uh, an oligarchy from the very beginning, ruling by uh, terror and uh, force and violence and uh, political assassination. Uh, So this uh, essentially is an economic history of uh, not only why Greece and Rome ended, but why the pro-creditor laws, the legal system, the whole uh, economic system that Rome bequeathed, uh to the uh, west when it collapsed we we're still in it and what is happening today with the uh the, the debt crisis we're talking about uh is really a process of how uh greece and rome shifted the west onto a completely different way of organizing society than had existed earlier in the near east and uh which uh survived in uh many parts of asia so uh, uh we're just doing the Uh, index and typesetting of that book now, it'll be up in a few months.
0: Great. Well, I look forward to seeing that. Uh, Professor Hudson's books are always amazing. I've learned so much from them. They've really influenced my economic and political worldview. With that, um, I want to remind everyone that every time I do an interview with Professor Hudson, we always publish a transcript of the interview. You can find that over at multipolarista.com, and it will also be on his website, Michael-Hudson.com. As I wrap up here, I want to thank everyone who joined in the chat. It was a very lively discussion. I wish I had more time to respond to questions, but I want to be respectful of Professor Hudson's time. I do want to um, give a special shout out to the super chat comments. Thank you to uh, Dino Pantelucas. Thank you to David David or David David. Thank you to Babylon and uh, Professor Hudson. I'm sure I'll have you back sometime soon to talk about all of the the latest developments that things are changing, you know, pretty rapidly these days. So I know um, you're always writing about what's going on in the world. You're always doing great interviews. Anyone who wants to find your writings can go to michael-hudson.com. There's always a wealth of knowledge there. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It was a good discussion and uh, we touched on all the important uh, topics of this week.
0: Thanks, Professor Hudson, and thanks to everyone who watched or listened. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista, and I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.